Coming up on Stu Does America, there is one path left for Joe Biden to be the Democratic nominee. I know you didn't believe that, but it's true. We'll tell you what it is. Peter Schweizer joins us to talk about corruption and to make us all feel better in comparison about the terrible things we've done in our lives. And segregation makes a very woke comeback. Remember to click and subscribe, rate and review the show and click the fancy bell on YouTube for the notifications. It both helps other people find the show and guarantees you'll live out the rest of your years in good health and prosperity. This is Stu Does America. Stu Does America. Now, I don't want to have to take you to school with my history knowledge, but I'll do it if I have to. I mean, basically, the story of our country is pretty simple. Our ancestors were annoyed with really narrow streets and warm beer and lack of deodorant. So they hopped on a cruise and set up shop near Fenway Park, pretty much. A bunch of other stuff happened and we got annoyed enough to throw tea into water, which is actually the only thing you're ever really supposed to do with tea. So it worked out nicely. Bottom line, we didn't like the idea of a king, primarily because of his British teeth, sure. But then also because we didn't like being told what to do all the time. Our system isn't set up for one dude to make massive decisions on who's leading it. And, you know, look, we have elections and occasionally we're even able to count the votes correctly. Looking at you, Iowa. How's that going? But we all have this weird fantasy football scenario in the back of our heads where we walk into that voting booth. We slide in right before your grandma's grandma tells her great great grandpa to close the polling location. And we cast the last vote. And it's that last vote is the one that makes all the difference. You break the tie. Of course, this scenario is thousands of times less likely than you dying in a massive car accident on the way to the polls. But hey, the Eagles won the Super Bowl. Anything can happen. Trust me. We don't have kings. You know, we just don't have that here. Only one individual really has the chance to conduct his own personal election. The president. He gets full autonomy as a candidate to look around the country and pick whoever he believes is the best person to lead the country should something happen to him. And I say him because at the moment, the only two women who might have a chance to win are a lady who pelts her staff with staplers if they make eye contact and someone who is as authentic as a knockoff purse in a Chinese street market with the label Gucci spelled with a CH. By the way, when you're at the market, stop into the cafe for a nice bowl of bat soup. It pairs well with an ice cold Corona. Point is, Barack Obama was able to hold a one man election, essentially. He cast the deciding vote for who would wind up one heartbeat away from the presidency. And he chose Joseph Robinette Biden Jr., which is his actual full name. You should always remember that. Sure, we could put this decision-making process through endless rounds of criticism, like the parents of the girls that I took to the prom did to their daughters. But there's a bigger question here. If you've already selected him as the most qualified person in the entire country to be president, why don't you just endorse the guy? You might say, look, Biden is old, and that is a good point. Except, the fact, that Biden got the job in the first place specifically because he is ancient now, on this show, I am completely happy to make up quotes. I mean, I have incredibly low standards, equal to the girls that I took to the prom. But this is a real quote. Why did Obama reportedly select Joe Biden? Quote, I want somebody with gray in his hair. End quote. I mean, criticize him all you want, but Joe Biden absolutely delivered on this. 
He not only has gray hair, but on the section of his body that is not covered in liver spots, he pretty much has gray skin, too. Obama picked Biden over 30 alternatives, 30, including Tim Kaine, who I realized after about six hours of research last night actually was Hillary's vice presidential candidate. Who knew? He is the most forgettable zilch of a VP pick in human history. He's as memorable as I was at a, at a prom. So what is the reason for Obama not throwing middle class Joe the endorsement? First, I guess, I, you know, by legal requirement, we have to spend a second on the official explanation. If you are the best choice for the Democrats in 2020, why didn't President Obama endorse you? I asked President Obama not to endorse, and he doesn't want to. This, we should, whoever wins this nomination should win it on their own merits. I mean, are we really supposed to believe Joe didn't ask for this endorsement because he wanted to earn it? The guy who helped shuttle his human kilo of a son from seven-figure job to seven-figure job was worried about getting a little leg up in his race to run the world? I mean, come on. The entire Biden family is basically a political version of the 2017 Houston Astros without all the winning. So how about number two? And this is an actually, I think this is a kind of a believable one. Barack Obama is just a bad friend. He's just a crappy friend. He's, you know, you're at the apartment. The U-Haul is parked out front. You've ordered the pizza and the beer. And Barack is pinging you on WhatsApp and saying like, hey, my car broke down and uh, my phone's about to die. And uh, my daughter has been punished with a baby. So I just can't quite make it over to help you move. So sorry, bro. Remember, for as horrible a candidate as Joe Biden is, he did give Obama foreign policy gravitas when he desperately needed it in 2008. I mean, Obama owes him. And it was Joe who turned the tides of the 2012 election in the vice presidential debate after Barack somehow got destroyed by Mitt Romney, which, by the way, after about six hours of research last night, I realized that Mitt Romney was at one time a Republican. It's true. Look it up. But the most plausible explanation as to why Obama won't endorse Biden is the scariest one. He saw something that we haven't seen, whether it's incompetence, laziness, senility, corruption, or something much, much, much worse. Barack Obama saw something that makes him believe Barack, uh, Barack Obama should not endorse Biden. Why? He doesn't believe Biden should be president. What is the reason? If he saw something that we haven't seen, it's kind of your job to tell the country about it, isn't it? I mean, because if not, he needs to prove it and endorse the guy. Joe Biden has one more path to keep his undying desire for the presidency alive. Obama should endorse him right now and then passionately campaign for him until South Carolina. Bring Michelle along, too, for a speech about how middle class Joe can fix income inequality if you could pull her off of Martha's Vineyard. To paraphrase, to, and this is an important one, uh, to paraphrase Bonhoeffer, if I may. <clears throat> no talkie is talky. If you don't get a media Baraka-palooza here in the next few days, remember that his silence is speaking volumes. Just a few words from Barack would probably be enough to earn Joe a comeback third place finish in Nevada and maybe a win in South Carolina. 
That makes Bloomberg increasingly irrelevant and maybe the only thing to stop Bernie Sanders. And we all know that Obama doesn't want a socialist to be the candidate. No, no. He doesn't. You see, he doesn't. Because suggesting Obama has an affinity for socialism is absolutely crazy and racist and everything else. It's it's as crazy as expecting him to show up to pick you up at the airport. So I guess it's one of the three. Either Biden sucks, Obama's a crappy friend, or Uncle Joe did something much, much worse. My next guest is the author of the new book, Profiles in Corruption, Abuse of Power by America's Progressive Elite. Now, I didn't check this uh, with my producers, but I'm guessing he has to be a fiction writer because the last administration was completely scandal free. And, uh, you know, whenever something does go wrong for progressives, like, you know, whatever, hundreds of millions of dead people start showing up. It just means they didn't implement it correctly. But next time they're going to do it right. Don't worry. Definitely no corruption, though. We'll have to ask him about that. He's also the author uh, of this hit exercise book, Yoda Yoga, uh, which, of course, uh, sparked the ever popular trend of doing yoga exercises while wearing a Yoda outfit. Peter Schweizer is with us. Uh, that was a, it's an incredible book. You, you, you made a you want to talk about the Yoda book or the corruption book? What? Let's start with corruption. We'll get to Yoda a little bit later. Uh, this is it's a, I mean, I don't know how you even do this because it is there's so much research that goes into your books and you find things that literally nobody else finds. Um, and you know, the, the mainstream media comes after you like they always come after people who criticize anyone who's who criticizes a progressive, but they don't find holes in your stuff. Can you just walk me through a little bit of just the process of putting a book like this together? Sure. I mean, I'm, I'm blessed because I have a great research team. We have uh, basically 12 researchers that work, work full time uh, on this. We have some other projects. But the key to it, Stu, is I think you have to uh, pursue granularity. And, and what I mean by that is if you're looking at Joe Biden, um, you really need to take the time to dissect what is the, does, does his family have a business model for corruption? How does it operate? And then you need to start looking at ways in which you can develop a paper trail. Uh, for us, the paper trail is key. We don't use anonymous sources. Uh, we don't just sort of throw things out there. It's all based on documentary evidence, legal documents, corporate documents, et cetera. It takes a long time. This book took 18 months of research. Yeah. I mean, that's it's basically impossible, right? Like you don't know. I mean, because you, you look at the book and it's so interesting of the people that you selected um, to to kind of look into. Uh, where you see someone like Kamala Harris, who was such a high profile, you know, looked like on paper was one of the, the front runners for a long time. Um, and she's in there and you have a great well, we should go into this because you have some really fascinating stuff on her. And she still is in the Senate. She's still an important figure. She's you know, going to just grow in power after this. Um, but then someone like Pete Buttigieg, who I don't know what you'd even find on a guy like that. He's like right. 14 years old. Right. Uh, <laughs> he's not in the book. Right? right. Like so you're predicting way in advance trying to understand who is going to be the big players, the big players here. Let's go into Kamala Harris here. Start with start with her. Yeah, Kamala Harris is interesting because, uh, you know, she has sort of this uh, this sense of being the prototype of what progressives want in their leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's interesting about her is you look at her political rise. It was really tied to the Willie Brown machine. Mm-hmm. You know, she starts dating Willie Brown. Willie Brown is running for mayor. Um, she's 29, I think, at the time. He's in his mid 60s. 
Uh, there's also that slight issue, the fact that he's married. Minor, um, <laughs> minor detail. You know, but as I talk about in the book, I mean, he really fuels her political rise. He buys her a BMW 700 series to drive around, which she keeps after they break up. Mm. Um, but that's really what his her political rise is. And even when they break up, uh, when she decides to run for San Francisco prosecutor, it's Willie Brown's machine that gets her elected. They raise her her money. They run the campaign. When she becomes prosecutor, what does she do? He's still mayor of San Francisco. She basically drops corruption charges that her predecessor had brought against Willie Brown's best friends and allies. And that's kind of the beginning of what you see with Kamala Harris, which is her use or abuse of power to benefit you know, her political allies. In some cases, I would argue to benefit her husband's clients. He's a lawyer. She's California attorney general while he's representing companies that she is supposedly going after but doesn't. Uh, it's, it's just raises real questions about how she actually exercised power uh, as, a, as a judicial figure. And I think she exercised it selectively in a way that's really a nightmare scenario for a lot of people. Uh, protecting people who are engaged in corrupt acts, who happen to be her friends, and going after people that are basically innocent of serious crimes, but she does not like politically. It's a fascinating one, too, in the context of the modern Democratic Party, where I mean, basically, the, the Willie Brown thing today would be viewed as a Me Too violation, right? Oh, absolutely. Like this very powerful man is, yes, sure, he did good things for her, but he was manipulating the situation. He had all the power. Right. And here she does. She takes that, turns the Me Too into a positive. I guess you give her some, give her some credit on that one, right. turning uh, lemons into lemonade a little bit there. Right. But that is a, like the fact that they sit back and accept that from her right. kind of shows how, how much of a future they think that she has because they would not if, if if a lot of Democrats, they would throw to the side with stuff like this with with her. They keep propping her up and they tried to I mean, they really did seemingly try to make her the candidate. Yeah, I think there was a lot of support, uh, uh, you know, for her mounting the candidacy and 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 pushing it. But I mean, the thing that strikes me about Kamala Harris is where she's prepared to go with this, because I think one of the most startling things in the book involves her, which is her predecessor, a guy named Hallinan, who was this kind of, you know, feisty fighting progressive um, in the early 2000s, realized what was going on with the Catholic church priest scandals. And he went to the local uh, Catholic diocese and said, I need you to turn over all your records to me because we're going to investigate these cases and these priests. And he launched these investigations. Well, Kamala Harris runs against him for prosecutor. Uh, who are her chief financial backers? People tied to the diocese of San Francisco, including the lawyers, mm. the people that are representing them. She ends up beating Hallinan. So what does she do? She's got the 700 page document that highlights all these allegations. She's got these ongoing investigations that her predecessor sets up. What does she do? She drops those cases. Uh, and, and over wow. the course of serving 15 years as California Attorney General and the, the prosecutor in San Francisco, she never prosecuted a single case in, in, involving priestly abuse. She's the only one that was a prosecutor in a top 50 city in America who did not prosecute a single case. It's, it's really stunning. That is a fascinating story because, I mean, first of all, that's, I haven't seen that anywhere. I yeah. mean, and, you know, that's when you're, you're talking about children here. This is not yes. like, you know, your the political corruption, stealing money, all that's really nasty. This is, you know, the lives of children, a, a really serious thing. Yeah. Um, let's go over to Bernie Sanders for a minute. Mm -hmm. Somehow he's the front runner of one of the two major parties in the United States of America, yeah. which I find to be uh, absolutely uh, fascinating. One of the things I think you sort of destroy in this book for me mm -hmm. is I kind of have this impression of Bernie Sanders. I want to believe 
that Bernie Sanders is an absolute socialist and be the worst president I can even imagine. But at least he's honest. At least he's a guy who comes out and says, yes, I'm a socialist. Yes, I'll raise taxes on the middle class. And he does do some of that. But the picture you paint of him is not an honest man. Yeah, I mean, the, the sense that progressives have, and I have friends that are progressives that love Bernie, is this guy is John the Baptist yeah. of the progressive movement, right? <laughs> he's out in the forest, he's eating bugs, he's eating honey. Uh, you know, he's a true believer. He's mm. the voice crying in the wilderness. Uh, the fact is, when you look at the way he's conducted himself politically, by what I mean is, is you know, steering money to his family, taxpayer money and also campaign money, mm-hmm. how he's handled his own life. He is not John the Baptist. Um, he's, he's one of the guys living in the palace. Um, and he's used power really in an extraordinary way to help his family. When he was elected mayor of Burlington, Vermont in the early 1980s, one of his first acts was to put his then girlfriend, later wife on the payroll. Yeah. And the city council, which was controlled by Democrats said, wait a minute, You can't do that. There's not even a job. You're you're just, you know, creating a job for her. Bernie basically blew him off and he won and she stayed on the payroll. Uh, And then when he ran for Congress, he put her in charge of media buying, which is a very lucrative way to sort of channel money to a candidate. Uh, She made a lot of money doing that, even though she had no background in media buying. So his M.O. has always been to figure out ways to benefit his family financially. Yeah, because the medium buying thing is a really interesting thing. I don't think the average person would understand. Right. It's a it's a great little scam if you could figure it out. Yeah, because, you know, basically the person who's doing the media buying, getting money from the campaign, purchasing the ads on the radio stations, on the TV stations, and they take a percentage of everything that flows through there. So you can't just take money from your campaign and give it to your wife or your, or your family. Right. But if they happen to have a job where they get a commission on every dime you you spend in your campaign, they can collect a fortune. Yeah. And it's and the genius part of it, Stu, is when you look at, you know, if you were a candidate, if you were running for the Senate and I was doing your media buys and I was taking a 15 percent commission, Mm -hmm. the beauty of it is on the Federal Election Commission filing, all it shows is that you made a, say, million dollar media buy. Mm -hmm. It doesn't say that I got one hundred fifty thousand dollars in commission. So it's not disclosed anywhere. Wow. We know this happened because she set up an LLC while while uh, you know Bernie was in this uh, in the house. Um, it was a media buying company. We traced the name of the company and realized that she was the one doing the media buying. That's the only reason we know it was never disclosed. And by the way, the other thing that we found out, Stu, is there's a couple of cases where there were people running for office in Vermont who were longtime Bernie allies, and and he wouldn't endorse them. And people were wondering, why why is Bernie not endorsing them? Well, it turns out those individuals then hired Jane to do his media buying. And shortly after that, Bernie would endorse them. So the evidence seems to indicate that he he was probably even leveraging his endorsements to drive business uh, to his wife. Not something you would expect from a sort of John the Baptist type of figure. No, no, not at all. (laughs) There's there's a lot more on Bernie I want to get to in a second. Um, Before we go to break here, though, next book. This media buying thing with this Bloomberg campaign right now, yeah. I can't even imagine. I mean, he is throwing so much money at this. Can you imagine the little connections, the, the, the way this, the, you know, these, these dollars are being uh, passed back and forth between the aides and consultants and layer after layer after layer? That's going to be a fascinating one. I can't wait for that next Peter Schweizer. After the next Yoda book, we'll get that one. Uh, back with more with Peter Schweizer in just a moment. Talking to Peter Schweizer, the author of Profiles in Corruption, Abuse of Power by America's uh, Progressive Elite, 
It's also written extensively about the Clintons uh, and their trail of cash over the years, which means this is really less of a stop on a book tour and more of a proof of life tour. Like he wants to make sure everyone knows he's totally fine. He's not, everything's fine. The family's fine. Everything's fine. Right. I'm Peter? here. I'm okay, here. He's yeah, good. Yeah. Um, I want to go a little bit more into Bernie here because I love you, you give him maybe the best thing I'd ever see on a business card. Um, uh, enemy of charities. That's, that's not <laughs> self-declared self enemy. Self-declared yeah. enemy of yeah. charities. Yeah. Who says that about themselves? Yeah. Explain that. Well, it's fascinating. I mean, Bernie Sanders, again, I mean, he's very honest and straightforward about saying that he's a socialist and he believes government ought to be running most things in our life. Uh, and one of the reasons that, that he believes that is he doesn't believe in charities. He mm. doesn't like charities. This Incredible. goes way back to the time that he was in Burlington. Um, there was a, a nonprofit hospital that was in the middle of Burlington and Bernie's idea was let's tax them. And people said, well, you can't tax them. They're a, they're a charity. And he said, I can tax them. I'm the mayor. So he slapped a, you know, two and a half million dollar a year tax on this charity that the, the hospital actually had to have this big court fight mm. saying you can't actually do this. And they ended up winning. But he also at the same time gave a famous speech where he said he went to imagine this for a second. You're mayor of Burlington, Vermont. You've been invited to go to the United Way and you go to the United Way and you give a speech that says, I don't believe in charities. <laughs> That's how Bernie rolls. And what he basically yeah. said is these should be government functions. They shouldn't be yeah. charities. And by the way, his personal giving reflects that. I mean, he gives less than 1% of his own income to charity. So in that sense, he's being consistent. Yeah, right? it is oddly consistent, right? <laughs> he thinks other people should be doing it. The government should do it. We shouldn't right. be doing it ourselves. Right. So, but I notice he doesn't have that same consistency when it's talking about, he doesn't overpay his taxes right. to pay for those programs. That's, that's exactly right. He doesn't. And by the way, he does himself run some nonprofit charities, a 501c3, mm -hmm. for example, where he solicits donations. But again, it speaks to, I think, this, this, this thing that people need to understand about Bernie is Bernie really is a statist. I mean, for him, it is yeah. about government and government is really the best and only delivery vehicle that should be helping people that are in, in situations of need because he doesn't believe that charities actually serve a, a good a good function in society. I mean, I, we always say this like this, this guy is looking for a fundamental transformation yeah. uh, of our society. I, I mean, that's it, right? Like being against charity. <laughs> is, is there any bigger fundamental transformation for the American people than that? Yeah. Um, let's go over to some of the other candidates because Amy Klobuchar has this uh, run. I think she had a really smart strategy of never having anyone consider her uh, for like eight months. And then the last second, she just jumped right in there. So she hasn't had this big like boomlet and bust. Yeah. No one's really talked about her. The only thing really maybe people would criticize is this idea of uh, she may be a little aggressive to her staff. Right. You do talk about that a little bit. Can yeah. you, is that is that real or is that just you know people on staff complaining? I, I think it's real. I mean, she was voted the worst person on Capitol Hill to work for. <laughs> this is by congressional staffers. She had a very high turnover rate. Now, look, she's a tough boss. Her side of the story is, well, I'm a tough boss. Yeah. Now, some of the stories are pretty amazing. I mean, one of them, a staffer said that, that you know, she was doing a phone interview and she had a female staffer go down and dry shave her legs uh, while she was doing that interview, there mm -hmm. are reports that one uh, staffer um, apparently mixed up something with the Times. So her staff was meeting with Al Franken's staff. 
uh, and they were Klobuchar's staff was late, so she made that staffer stand up in front of everyone, and in kind of Stalinist uh, show trial <laughs> fashion, she stood up in front of everybody and had to say, "I am the reason that we are oh here late. Gosh. Please forgive me." So she's a tough taskmaster. Like a scene out of Chernobyl. Yes, but but I would say that that um, you know she gets all, I, I think a pass in part because people think she's from Minnesota. How corrupt right. in Minnesota? This isn't Louisiana. Uh, but there are a lot of things about the way that she's used her position to benefit allies and friends that are troublesome as well. And I don't think she should be overlooked in those areas. She, I, she honestly just comes off as dull. Yeah. You know, I know yeah. she's not a particularly dynamic candidate. She okay. memorizes a lot of bumper stickers. Yeah. But outside of the actual um, way she's treated her staff. What would people find when they when they look into Amy Klobuchar? Well, a couple of things. One, when she was the chief prosecutor for Hennepin County in Minnesota, which covers Minneapolis, is the most important sort of legal job in the state. Um, she really talked about the fact that she aggressively pursued white collar criminals. Uh, she gives these examples. A lot of them were kind of small actors. But the big glaring hole is this guy named Tom Petters who was in Minneapolis, ran something called Petters Worldwide, his company, which ended up being the second largest Ponzi scheme mm. in American political history. Wow. Uh, and what's interesting about this is she went after some of his business partners, um, but she never went after him. And I think the reason is when she decided to run for the U.S. Senate, who was her largest campaign contributor he and his business partners gave her more money by a magnitude of three times than anybody else in the state. Amazing. When he was finally charged by the FBI in his Ponzi scheme, his, one of his first phone calls was to then Senator Amy Klobuchar, who gave him legal advice on who to hire to defend him. Once she came to the U.S. Senate, interesting paradox, she has an 87% voting record with Bernie Sanders. So she's actually more liberal than people often realize. Yes, this is important, an important point. Exactly. But she's one of the top three recipients in the entire U.S. Senate for corporate campaign money. So mm. how does that happen? How do you vote with Bernie Sanders, but you get corporate cash? It's because, and I lay this out in the book, uh, she gets bundles of contributions from corporate executives from the same company over a very brief period of time, two or three days. And then with a matter of a couple of weeks, she introduces legislation that's particularly beneficial to that company. So it's a mm. it's a very aggressive form of crony capitalism. Uh, is there how much of this, though, is just aligned interest, right? Like I'm a I'm a senator. I go in there. I'm a, a, a fan of uh, fossil the fossil fuel industry. Yeah. Well, of course, I'm getting they of course yes. want to support me because I already supported their opinions. Right. We see this a lot like the, the left does this a lot with people who support Second Amendment rights. Right. They say, oh, they're just getting money from the NRA. Well, the NRA is giving the money because they support Second Amendment rights. Yes. Is there an argument to be made that some of this is just aligned interest? Yes, and some of it, absolutely. What's particularly interesting in her case is that you get bundles of contributions um, from uh, people that have never given to her before over a very self-contained time. So mm -hmm. there's an energy company, for example, we talk about, where I think it's two dozen executives from one company give her money over like a three or four day period, give her you know large maximum contributions. Mm. Um, and then within two weeks, um, she introduces legislation that they like. And, and it's not like the company executives get together and do that again. Right. So it, it's, it's, it's an interesting timing. But I agree with you. By itself, it doesn't speak to anything other than the way things are done in Washington typically. But in her case, it stands out because of the timing and sort of the concentrated effect. Mm. Uh, and these are industries that she oftentimes is not doing bidding for. Uh, yeah. It's, uh, that, I mean, it's, it's almost too obvious, right? Yeah. Like you, you need to be able to hide your grift better. <laughs> right. We need to <laughs> right. teach Amy right. this if she's going to be president. Right. Uh, Elizabeth Warren. Right. Um, 
it's been fascinating going through your Warren chapter and that she is a she's someone who's made her name saying, you know what, we can't have outside corruption. We can't have these outside companies and interests writing regulations for right. the government. Right. Yet that's basically her story. Yes, that's exactly that's you know, she has a net worth of uh, roughly 12 million dollars. She didn't get that teaching at Harvard. I mean, I know Harvard pays pretty well. Yeah. They don't pay that well. No. The way she made her money was she was hired actually by Congress in the mid-1990s to help rewrite bankruptcy laws. She's a smart attorney in that way. So she actually wrote things that ended up in the bankruptcy code. And, and we know this because she actually described this in a legal brief. Yeah, and um, this, is her, this is her conversion point from being a Republican, right? Like yes. she comes in and starts rewriting bankruptcy laws and then says, wait a minute, I'm not a Republican anymore. Now I'm a Democrat. Exactly. That's, well, it's, it's an interesting, it's an important part of her life. Absolutely it is. And so she gets paid by taxpayers to rewrite the code, but then she does a move that is, you know, one of the most common and dirtiest moves in Washington, <laughs> D.C., which is she then goes to the companies that are affected by the new law, large corporations, and says, hire me. I just rewrote these laws that are going to apply to you. And if you hire me, I will help you navigate around them and through them. That's brilliant. Of course, she knows it better than anybody. Exactly. Why would you hire her? Exactly. So she made millions of dollars from uh, mm. companies like Dow Chemical, Armstrong Worldwide, major corporations who she now criticizes, by the way. Um, she made that's really where she made the family fortune. And this is, again, with her, it's also the family fortune. Her son-in-law yeah. uh, is involved in, in all sorts of uh, shady dealings like this. This seems to be a pattern throughout this entire thing where they feel like these politicians uh, and and you're talking about, uh, you know, all the big names. They have this idea that you can't necessarily do it yourself. But if you could set up your family, you could set it up with a layer of separation, whether it's, you know, the son-in-law of Elizabeth Warren, if it's Frank Biden that you go through in depth as well. This is all over the place. And it seems like it's there's like a playbook to it. Yeah, it's a family playbook. And what they've realized is. Look, if, if you're a powerful politician and I want a favor from you and you want something from me, uh, the terrible way to do it for both of us is for me to give you like a shoebox of cash <laughs> right. and you do me a favor because you know what? If we get caught, we're going to jail and it's pretty easy to prove. But if you say to me, look, I'll do your favor for you, Peter, but you know, my son needs a job or my brother is looking to expand his business, do him a favor. Um, that's really hard to prove. Now, in the eyes of the law, it's still bribery. If we're exchanging a favor, you know, in exchange for money, whether it's a friend or a family member, it's still bribery, but it's just so much harder to prove. And that's why so many of these politicians do what I call offshore their corruption. They don't take the payment themselves. They don't get the favor themselves. It goes to a family member. So it becomes a lot blurrier and harder to prove. And this is Hunter Biden 101, right? I mean, yes. it, 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 you know, that's the thing with that is like, you know it's at least the motivation of Burisma, right, in that oh, case. Oh, absolutely. Like, at the very least, it's like, why else would they want Hunter Biden right. other than exactly. to get this influence? I, I wanted to show you, actually, this uh, this one chart. Now, this has nothing to do with your book, but I just saw it. I think it was in the Wall Street Journal. All right. um, and it's the income uh, levels of Joe Biden in his life. And <laughs> <laughs> Now, if you're listening on podcast, you've got the entire history, which is flat at his Senate salary, his entire life, yep. to the second he leaves office, and then it shoots up to $11 million, and then about $6 million afterwards. Now, their right. excuse for that is, oh, we just sold so many books. Right. So many books. Everyone sells so many books. The book industry seems to be dying for everyone else except politicians. They right. just sell millions and millions of dollars. Right. That, to me, is just comical, but it does sort of point to 
seemingly how obvious it was with the Bidens. Like they really did just go for this hardcore. Oh, absolutely. It didn't see, they didn't seem to have maybe it's because Biden's older, maybe because, you know, his his kids had had so many uh, issues and so many personal problems that they didn't seem to take the steps necessary to really separate themselves from all. Of this. Oh, I know. I agree. And I think I think, look, he's been in public office. He was in public office since 1972. Uh, through his vice presidency, so a very long period of time. And the thing that stands out with the Bidens is the the extensiveness and the scope of it. I mean, I call them the Biden Five. It's like the Jackson yeah, Five, yeah. but they can't <laughs> sing and dance, right? Um, but the Biden Five are the five family members. Hunter's just one of them. You've got four others yeah. uh, that all cashed in in various degrees. You got a brother James that you know gets involved with this new construction business. Uh, his Joe Biden's brother, James, becomes the executive vice president. He has no background in construction. And within six months, they lend a billion and a half dollar construction <laughs> contract in Iraq. It's a miracle. In exactly. Iraq, too. In I mean, Iraq, I mean, financed by yeah. taxpayers. And of course, Joe Biden is overseeing Iraqi reconstruction. That certainly is helpful. But, you know, these sorts of things go on. They're extensive. They're widespread. I've never seen a case uh, as direct and as clear cut as the Bidens, because it involves five family members. It involves all these international actors, Ukrainians, Chinese, Kazakhs. It's a veritable United Nations of corruption. I've never seen it this extensive before in one political family. That is, a, And you said that a couple of times, and it's remarkable to hear you actually lay it out like that. I mean, you've looked at all these guys. You've yeah. looked at, I mean, you've done books on the Clintons. You've done books on, on Republicans as Absolutely. well that have lots of this stuff going oh, on. And there, I mean, there was a, a, a Republican senator uh, from uh, Missouri, a, a Roy Blunt, yeah. who I believe has three family members who've been registered lobbyists at a time. That That's pretty extreme. Well, Joe Biden outdoes him by two family members. <laughs> and I would dare say the amount of money his deals are much larger than what Senator Blunt was involved with. Oh, man, it's amazing. Uh, you have to get this book. It's Profiles in Corruption. Peter Schweizer, uh, if you've read Clinton Cash and all the uh, all the other books, we've, we've had him on so many times. And every time he brings new stuff, I don't know how you do it. I don't know how you get all this stuff. Your 12 researchers are amazing. Thanks so much for coming on the program. It's great to be here. Thanks, Stu. Thanks. Back in a second. Welcome back. Uh, you can follow me at Stu Does America. You can also subscribe on YouTube and, of course, everywhere. Uh, and blazetv.com slash stew. Use the promo code stew. You will save 10 bucks on a subscription and get access to all the shows and all the archives. Get access to Glenn's new uh, archive of his Wednesday show. It's just something you should do. It's what good Americans do. Are you not a good American? I don't know. I can't judge you, but I am judging you. Um, we wanted to spend a couple of minutes here talking about uh, the weird uh, way we're kind of being affected by the news right now. Because I feel like a lot of times it's just incredibly depressing. And every news story you read is more bizarre than the last one. It's more disturbing than the last one. It reminds you uh, almost like you're, it's almost like you're living in a foreign land that doesn't make any sense. Uh, and this seems to accelerate more and more and more. And that's why we need a new we need a new game show. Uh, what is the most uh, disturbing uh, to you? What, what news story will disturb you most to your core? Got to work on the title a little bit. What what is taking the insides and your organs and dissolving them so you digest them and excrete them? Is that catchy? I don't I'm not I'm not quite good at that, but we'll come up with a good name for it. Let me give you three clips. You tell me which one is the most disturbing. Which one makes you lose faith in society more? We start off with the Democratic front runner, 
in one of the two major parties. Remember, this is the Democratic Party. This is a, this is I mean, right now, markets say they've got what a 45, 46 percent chance of taking the presidency. Here's the guy currently in the lead. Let's look back at his life. You know, it's funny. Sometimes American journalists talk about how bad a country is because people are lining up for food. That's a good thing. Oh, in other countries, people don't line up for food. The rich get the food and the poor starve to death. Obviously. You know, as, as a socialist, the word socialism does not frighten me. I think when we were in Moscow, for example, I think most of the people here also were extremely impressed by their public transportation. System. Oh, yeah. The stations themselves were absolutely beautiful, mm -hmm. uh, in, including many works of art, chandeliers that art. were beautiful. It was a very, very effective system. Pretty chandeliers, Also, guys. I was impressed by the youth programs that they have, uh, their palaces of, of, of culture for, for the young people, a whole variety uh -huh. of, young, uh, of programs for young people, and cultural programs which go far beyond what we do in this country. Mm. To China and its leadership. Because if I'm not mistaken, they have made more progress in addressing yeah. extreme poverty than any country in the history of okay. civilization. Okay, so they've done a lot of things for their people. But I remember, for some reason or other, being very excited when, when Fidel Castro made the revolution in Cuba. I was a kid <laughs> and I remember reading that. We know the and reason. It just seemed right and appropriate that poor people were rising up against rather ugly rich people. You may recall way back in, what was it, 1961, they invaded Cuba. And everybody was totally convinced that Castro was the worst guy in the world. And all the Cuban people were going to rise up in rebellion against Fidel Castro. They forgot that he educated their kids, gave them health care, totally transformed the society. Oh, yeah. But just because Ronald Reagan dislikes these people does not mean to say that the people in their own nations feel the same way. But have some good things been done in Cuba? Yes. How do you find the sincerity of Sandinista leaders? I was impressed. I was impressed by Father Descoto because he is a very gentle, very loving man. Uh, Ortega is an impressive guy. Uh, Ernesto Cardinal is a, is a funny looking guy. He's gray hair. Oh, and he really does remind you of a hippie. Why have you stopped short of calling Maduro of Venezuela a dictator? Well, well, he, I, I think it's, he, I, I, it's fair to say that the last election was undemocratic. Uh, oh. But there are still democratic operations taking place in that country. Oh, well, if there's democratic operations taking place in that country, then it, it, it's, it's totally worth it. I mean, a guy who's struggling to call Maduro a dictator, a guy who's praising dictator after dictator after dictator, a guy who is looking at giving credit to communists, what capitalists have created. This is a guy who is leading the pack of the Democrats. Now, I mean, I guess to us, maybe it's not all that surprising that someone would be mega uh, left wing nut job and, and be leading the Democratic Party. But I mean, 50 percent of this country close to it is expecting to vote for this guy potentially. Uh, that's pretty disturbing. Let me give you the next one. This is uh, at uh, the University of Virginia. They created a new multicultural uh, center. And uh, there is a, a lady there, a student, who needs to make a, just a brief announcement to all you whiteies out there. Watch. Public service announcement. Excuse me. If y'all didn't know, this is the MSC. Mm. And frankly, there's just too many white people in here and this is a space for people of color so just be really cognizant of the space that you're taking up because it does make some of us pocs uncomfortable when we see too many white people in here it's only been open for four days and frankly there's the whole university for a lot of y'all to be at and there's very few spaces for us so keep that in mind thank you Woo! 
Segregation, yeah. Oh, they should start a new slogan. Segregation now, segregation forever. I mean, it works out really well when people do this. I love how she says, well, there's other places on the university that you guys can go. I'm pretty sure we can all go to all the places in the university. Like, that's supposed to be the way it's supposed to work. Uh, it's a fascinating thing. Can you imagine just, cha- we, we need to do something on this maybe next week or something. Can you imagine just changing the words? Change the color. This is the uh, Stu Does America uh, racism guide for you. If you're a little confused, am I about to say something racist? One thing you can do is just change the color and say it out loud. And you tell me if it sounds racist. So when if someone were to say, like she just did, there's too many white people up in here, you change that color. You think it's racist? Do you think maybe it might be a little racist? Or if you were to say, look, a lot of us white people here just get a little nervous (laughs) when there's too many POCs in the room. (laughs) Okay, you understand, of course. You can go to your areas of the campus. That's psychotic. Uh, That's disturbing. I don't know if it's the most disturbing story of the day because the most disturbing story may very well come from Seattle at a uh, at a public uh, hearing about trees. There's an unwelcome sight in the neighborhood. A developer is being greedy. There's (laughs) a hole in the sky where a tree once stood. I love the lady behind her is dressed as a tree. Such a lack of life and sound. All that's left is bare, muddy ground. A magnificent tree was murdered. The mighty dollar cut it down. What's happening? There's a hole in the sky the where the tree once was. Somebody's making money. Stand up. There's a hole hmm. in the sky where the tree once was. Somebody's making money. Laws protect exceptional trees. But the city grants exemptions to these. Instead, they reward the developer's greed and sanction the murderer's deeds. There's a hole in the sky where the tree once was. Somebody's making money. Okay, before this gets too stuck in your head, I think we should step in and rip it out. Uh, You can stop it. I'm I'm fascinated by the idea that you just go into a... uh, I mean, once a song starts, I mean, this isn't a musical. When a song starts... Don't you just kick them off the mic? I guess they just have rights to the mic because it's public. I will tell you this. um, It's always a good idea when you're going to a a local government event to dress as a tree. That's just something that you do. You do it. You do it proudly. And you walk right through that. If someone says, why are you dressed as a tree? You just you don't worry about that. But here's another thing I want to tell you about tomorrow on the radio show. Uh, We may have and I just I don't I'm just going to throw it out there. I can't guarantee we may have developed a full musical treatment for this particular song. I've heard the uh, the first version of it. I'm very excited about it. Uh, and I will say, you might say, well, you, I don't want to hear you sing some dumb song. No, no. We have her singing it with a full orchestral background. You're going to love this, and you're going to rush to get your tickets on Broadway to watch the tree play. We'll be back with a little bit more here in just a second. Welcome back. You know, this portion of the program is brought to you by NancyPelosiSucksPen.com. If you think Nancy Pelosi sucks, you should get a Nancy Pelosi Sucks commemorative impeachment pen, just like her real pen, except it says sucks after it. Nancy Pelosi Sucks Pen. It's for you. Um, before we go, uh, we yesterday, I think on the radio show, we're talking a little bit about 
uh, the fact that this this little podcast, because of you, is rising up the charts very quickly on, on the iTunes and all the other places. And on iTunes chart in particular, we had reached like the high 20s, I think it was. Um, and that's ridiculous. It should not happen. Obviously, the quality of this thing is it's not that high. Um, but we saw something that was interesting, which was we were only a few slots behind Michael Moore. Do we have that graphic? This is this is what it looked like. Uh, if you're if you're uh, listening on podcast, you were at number 20 was Stu Does America. And uh, number uh, uh, 23 on that one is Michael Moore. We actually were able to pass Michael Moore. We're very excited about that because Michael Moore sucks. We should make Michael Moore sucks pens. Anyway, uh, we also noticed that only two slots ahead of us was at number 18 was the Glenn Beck program, the other stupid show I'm on every day. And look at this. We've now passed Glenn Beck. So, you know, screw you, show I'm on every day from uh, wherever we are. Good night.